Hi, this is Paul. I wanted, when I made this video, retconning history, myth fiction, and Tom Holland on, on Jesus, I made that video last week before the, the Christmas holiday, I, I mentioned I was going to want to talk a little bit more about this book, um, Joshua Swamidas's The, Genealog the Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Human Universal Ancestry. Now, what I'm not intending to do in this video is make a definitive case for this book. What I am intending to do with this video is to make the case that the world is enormously complex and we tend to have a bias for simplicity that we need in order to function in the world. And what we have to do is reduce all of this complexity down to simple models that are good enough to use out there in the world. Those of you who follow me on Twitter know that the Jordan Peterson released a video on Christmas on the Logos at Ephesus, which which I think was a which was a speech that he gave for this sort of inauguration of Ralston College. He is the I forget exactly he's the chancellor. If you look up what a chancellor is, it's it's a it's it's sort of vague. In other words, he's he's got a, a prestigious position and a founding position and an influential position in this new school called Ralston College that Stephen Blackmore, who was on the Genesis, is on the Exodus seminar. You can find him there. He's done a variety of videos with Jordan Peterson in the past. Anyway, all of that aside, this was, I think, a Jordan sort of used this talk to give kind of an overview of basically his worldview, especially his religious worldview. And at some point, it would be good for me to go through that because in, in many ways, if you're looking for sort of a one-hour piece, it's not necessarily that easy to understand. But if you're looking for a sort of a one-hour piece of a canonical recording of where Jordan is at on many of these issues, this is it. Now, when I say that the world is complex and, it, and we have to reduce it in order to manage things, that, I think, is one of the big takeaways of cognitive science and how cognitive science has factored into all of the conversations on this little corner of the internet. We all need a model of the world to work from. And the models of the world that we use to work from will vary between us. Probably each one of us will have an idiosyncratic or unique model of the world, which will certainly be impacted by many other models and, and sort of pieced together. It will, always, it will also be a function of our capacity to manage the complexity of a model. In other words... Um, people with um, probably a long life, a lot of reading, a lot of experience, because you can gain information and knowledge through a lot of different ways, will have, uh, will have probably quite complex, well-worked-through models, especially if they thought through them a lot. A person who, a person who, who is younger, perhaps less intelligent, less learned, Less paying less attention to the world. Um, this is funny, this is distracting.
Oh, that, that makes it even worse. See, I should pause. There, that's a little less distracting. People are going to have different models of the world. And we all have limitations, good limitations, for our capacity to manage the complexity of these models. We have to have that because we have to live and you have to make decisions. And in many respects, the decisions that you make will be based on these models. And these models will have varying degrees of not only varying degrees of complexity, but varying domains and ranges of knowledge within them. So in other words, so let's say you're, let's say you know how to drive a car. The model that you use for car will be limited to the necessity that you have for that model. You might know, not know how to repair the car very well. You might not, in fact, know how to negotiate with a car mechanic very well you might be completely at the mercy of a car mechanic, whereas someone who knows more about cars will not be at the mercy. And, and again, by virtue of the way that the, the contemporary world is, there are many, many, many domains of knowledge that you need to function in this modern world. Car repair, home construction, family dynamics, cooking, sewing, uh, shopping, um, and we live in this enormously complex world and we manage it by these trusted networks of people within it, okay? And so all of us have models for many of the different areas and there'll be whole ranges of areas that we have no models for, or very limited models for, and we simply outsource our cognition. We outsource via trust our communal relevance realization to other people. We have to do that. There's no other way for us to live. So we have all of these models that, that we're dealing with. Now, so Jordan Peterson, I think in his Logos at Ephesus, sort of lays out his religious model, all right? And, and it's within a certain domain. Now, when it comes to the Bible and stories in the Bible, we have to deal with a lot. Now, this week, for example, I'll be dealing with the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And for those of you who know, the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew is uh, begins with this big genealogy. And, well, that's interesting. Now, because of our models, we have these biases. And, and in many ways, our communal relevance realization, models are in some ways preset biases, either to believe or not to believe, how we're going to interact with a, with a group of things. You might have a preset bias of auto mechanics that they're thieves, using the complexity of the car to upcharge you for as much money as they think they can get out of you. You might have the same bias towards uh, car salesmen. You might have the same bias towards Christian ministers. You might have the same bias towards universities. You might have the same bias towards politicians. You have all of these biases, and what these biases are are a function of the models that you're using in order to manage way through life. Uh, biases in terms of race, biases in terms of language, biases in terms of vocation, biases all over the place are sort of predetermined, preconceived um low-resolution models that help you get through life. Oh, you're a car, car salesman? I don't trust you. Oh, you're a Christian minister? I don't trust you. 
and and these models develop within us as as we grow maybe you grew up and and all you heard from your parents is church church pastors are just trying to get money out of people don't trust them so you don't trust pastors because that was the first draft of of the basic map that you inherited from your parents now maybe you met a pastor along the way and you discovered oh this this pastor doesn't seem to be trying to bilk me out of my money he he's wrestling and trying to trying to tell the truth with things and then suddenly your model for pastors gets an update in terms of the resolution and gets an update in terms of well how should i evaluate well maybe i should evaluate pastors one at a time now when you do that what you're doing is you're relying on other models you know, and well, does he seem to be open? Does he seem to be friendly? Does he seem to be kind? What does his church look like? Is it a pastor with a little bit of money? Because then I think I don't think he's a con man. Or maybe he's just a really bad con man. Is it a pastor with a lot of money? Well, therefore, maybe he's a crook. Or maybe he's just living in a place where he's got a lot of people in his church with money and they're generous with him, yada, yada, yada. All of these biases. And so, our map of the world is all filled with all of these biases, which are basically low-resolution models in order to get us to basically speed the world up so we can make snap decisions about things. Part of what has happened in modernity with this um, sort of pre... This, this major bias towards a correspondence a correspondence theory of truth. Now, a correspondence theory of truth is a very, very good thing. And sometimes when I talk about this, people get misunderstood. Oh, you're against a correspondence theory of truth. No, I'm, uh, we all, a correspondence theory of truth is a super important thing. Um, I, in fact, know my wife and my children and my church and much of the world through a correspondence theory of truth. This runs right into sort of a Peugeotian, we'll just use Jonathan Peugeot, but he's not the only one, obviously, to come up with this, a Peugeotian understanding of our engagement with reality, that um, my wife is, when I think about category wife, I think about correspondence with a particular human being wrapped in skin through history that is very unique, that I have had a... 35, 37 year history with, but when I look, when I think about wife, I don't just think of her hand or I don't just think of her head. There is sort of a composite that I think about, but even though um, she's got gray hair instead of dark hair and um, she's been pregnant five times since we've been married and so she's, her, her weight has fluctuated um, I got to be careful with this. Uh, she doesn't watch my videos anyway. Uh, I could just use me. Um, when we were when we were married, I had more hair, and now I have less hair. I had hair on my chin, but it wasn't quite as long as it is now. I have more wrinkles in my head than when we got married. Um, I weigh I weigh a fair amount more today than when we got married. I mean, all of these all of these things are a factor in terms of who I am and who she is and, and the reference to each other, but yet we correspond. And, and part of Jonathan Peugeot's big insight that is sort of at the basis of a lot of his symbolism is the, is the idea and is, is the assertion, is the realization really that we sort of snap in sort of a, it's a model, it, it's a, 
it's a gestalt. I mean, that's a word that's been used for a similar thing. All of these certain ways of saying wife. There she is. And I know who she is. She's my wife. And that's even though she's changed, I've changed, all of these things, that's, that category still holds. Now, if we were to get a divorce, well, suddenly it would slip. Then she'd be my ex-wife. She would still be the mother of my five children. And on and on and on and on. Part of what has happened, I think, in terms of our models is that we have developed biases about whole ranges of things. And again, we can't help but have biases about whole ranges of things. We need these biases about whole ranges of things in order to act. But these, bi these biases have, the biases themselves are, are complex things we're not terribly in touch with. So for example, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah Matthew chapter 1 through 16, uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1 through, um, through 17. Okay, what to make of this genealogy? Well, I think part of what has happened in the modern critical skeptical sphere is we look at this and we say, this is just BS. Well, why? Well, all old genealogies are just BS. Well, Why? Well, because all old things are BS. Well, why? Well, because people were motivated to, to, to make it all work. Oh. Does that mean that everything that is the product of someone who is motivated to make it all work is BS? Or you're motivated to make your family work. Does that mean you're BS? Your auto mechanic is motivated to make your engine work. Does that mean he's B it's BS? No, 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 no. Because when something works, it's true. Oh, and this is where you get into a whole bunch of Jordan Peterson stuff about, you know, making a, you know, breeding, you know, crossing smallpox with Ebola or something, something evil like that. Is that true? Well, and then suddenly we're, we're dealing with this question of truth. And it's just really easy to just reduce truth to some type um, physical correspondence between language and correspondence. But again, very quickly, the models get complex. And so you can't really do that sort of correspondence. And, and so I think it's, a, it's really helpful to just name a bias with respect to the genealogies. And then if we move to something like Peugeot and Richard Rowland talking about these genealogies to Noah's fourth son and things like that, again, it's especially from... It, especially from a Protestant upbringing that in some ways just sort of cast dispersions on anything that smells of medieval. And that's why I often talk, we just think, well, that's just all BS, all of these relics, enough relics, enough relics of the cross to make an ark and, and all of this stuff. And, and that isn't to say that it, what I'm saying is if your model gets large enough, this stuff starts to get really complex. And again, some of you will just listen to this, and I know this because I read the comments section, will say, yeah, this is you're just you're just propagating woo. Am I? That might be your bias. And well, you know, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe we're gonna have to talk about a lot more of what it means to be right and wrong than just physical correspondentism. 
But then you discover things that you begin to realize, oh, well, I hadn't thought of that. Now, this is where I begin to get into the question of this book, because part of what you use these biases for, and often what you use these biases for, are sort of good guys and bad guys. Um, let's, let's use... Let's use BioLogos. Now, what's really interesting is if you um, if you talk to Bethel McGrew, she'll say she doesn't she can't stand the BioLogos people. Me, well, I'm I'm sort of well. Why do I? Why would I? Why would I have a favorable bi favorable bias towards the BioLogos people? Well, because um, Lauren Harmsma was in my dorm at Calvin. Tony Dikema, who was the college president at Calvin when I was there and, and served on a um, served on a couple of um, denominational committees with me. So I have some I have a small personal relationship with Tony Dikema and some of his sons went to school with me. And so I, I, I just sort of have a, a low resolution model bias in favor of BioLogos because Calvin College, now Calvin University, and a bunch of other people had a hand in putting together BioLogos. And the goal of BioLogos was sort of a missional goal to try to hold sort of the two books together. What do I mean by the two books? The two books of of, net, of special revelation and general revelation sort of hold them together. And BioLogos worked hard to try to God's world, word and God's world. Now Bethel comes from a little different side of things. And she looked and said, I don't like these people. I don't like what they're doing, blah, 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 blah. Well, one of the things that happened in BioLogos is one of their team members was uh, basically talked about the fact that, well, via genetics, we know there's no Adam and Eve. And now I never really bought that fully because why? Because I have lots of other low resolution models that says, yeah, science can do a lot, but they never know it all. And so part of my low-resolution res model with this stuff is when people say, trust the science, I'm like, eh, I'll, I'll trust them to a point, okay? Because I know that science <laughs> science isn't a thing like this lens cap. And the deeper that I've gone into this little corner, if you talk to someone like John Verveke, who points out some of the limitations of science, even though John Verveke is very much a scientist and, and very much a lover of science, as your models and your resolution get larger, you begin to notice, yeah, that's, science is just one little word and there's a lot of complexity to it. So don't go all the way with it. And then you get into the, are you for or against evolution? It's like, well, I uh, uh. Uh, what what do you exactly do you mean? And what parts of evolution? And so I've, I've always sort of... Um, I, I've always sort of just kind of um, said, I don't have to decide what I don't have to decide. Because truth be told, I can't answer very in-depth questions anyway. My models are fairly low resolution. And so... And my, my low-resolution models have sort of served me well on all sorts of other fronts. Because if I'm keeping company a bunch of, about a, amongst a bunch of people that say things like, well, unless you sort of confessionally declare your subscription to evolution, I'll have no part of you. Oh, okay. 
or unless you declare your subscription to and then maybe things about Adam and Eve, I'll have no part of you. Oh, okay. But I'm in kind of a moderate denomination that has always had a bit of um, generosity, let's call it about that, that there are some young earth creationists in our denomination and there are some of the people who developed BioLogos in our denomination. And we've sort of had both of those sides there. And and we've kind of said, well, you know, we're going to live with each other. We're not going to kick each other out of the church, depending on how you answer certain questions from the other side. And and that's, I think, worked fairly well for our denomination on on some fronts. So then when when I was in it, it was in a um, and it was in my Wednesday night men's Bible study that one of the individuals and this is an individual who was a member of the United Reformed Church. That's not the United Reformed Church of the UK. It's a very different thing. The United Reformed Church in the US and Canada is a split off of the Christian Reformed Church that split off in the 1990s over women in office. And and they all also over Genesis issues and some things like that. So they're a conservative split off. And he came to the men's group and he said, I've been reading this book, The Genealogy of Adam and Eve. And I thought, that's a funny book for you to be reading. Who's who's the publisher? InterVarsity Press. Ooh, InterVarsity Press. Another InterVarsity Press, sort of there with Christianity Today, sort of there with Calvin University. All these sort of evangelical moderates that are that are trying to hold together, as the BioLogos side says, God's word and God's world. So I thought, huh, guy who went to the URC is reading this. Well, he got it from his son, who's um, who actually teaches at, um, UC Davis over here and goes to one of our church plants. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. And he said, well, I'll talk about it because we were, we were in the book of Genesis. And so he made a little presentation. But before he did that, I thought, well, let me see if it's on audiobook. And it was. So I got the audiobook. And then I thought, well, then I started looking at it and thought, huh, there's a lot going on in this book. And the first thing that hit me was the background of this guy, well, I can probably introduce him a little bit better if I use, he's been on a variety of things around, um, well, let's see. So he's on James Tours, he's on James Tours YouTube page. And now James Tours is a really interesting guy on YouTube because he's a, um, he's a world-class scientist who basically looked at all of these people, and, and also an evangelical Christian who basically looked at all of these people that were saying, well, you know, there's like this soup and, and um, you know, bio, bio, life just sort of emerged from these, I don't know, volcanic pits or something like that. And he's kind of like, now I've done a ton of studying about this. And, and so he just kind of called BS on a whole bunch of that. That, that really critical phase of just kind of the emergence of life through chaos and happenstance because he says, you can't even do it if you're cheating. So cut the BS about all of this fitting into this timeline. And so, you know, here's a guy who knows a lot more and he's got credentials. And again, this is sort of the low resolution stuff that sort of makes up all of our little, all of our little fights. And he has this... This so let's let him do the introduction to the author here. And with that, I want to introduce my guest for today, and it's Joshua Swamidas. He is a uh, associate professor 
uh, of Laboratory and Genomic Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis. And he received his undergraduate degree in biology, an MS and PhD in computer science. And he's also an MD with distinction in research, all from the University of California at Irvine. And he's been a professor at Washington University in St. Louis since 2011. And he teaches in the Department of Immunology and Pathology. And his studies focus on the intersection of biology, chemistry, and medicine. And his professional experience also includes 50 uh, uh, more than 50 referee journal articles and uh, uh, many invited talks and two patents. And he's also a prominent figure in the Christian world. He gives a lot of talks through the Veritas Forum and uh, a lot of talks for InterVarsity. And he's really... Now, now, part of what's interesting about this is that for, for Swamidas, all this Bible stuff is an avocation. It's not his vocation. He, he just He's just a regular scientist at work in the world, but he grew up in sort of a conservative Christian household um, of Indian descent. And when he got into, you know, probably like many um, Indian families that came over to America and we want you to get a degree in science, you know, and many of these Asians, you know, get a, get a, get a high status, high profile, well-earning degree. And of course, but that means he's going to run head on into genetics and, and all of these questions really quite active there at, uh, at, at the campus at, at uh, Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, with that, I'd like to also be sure to mention that he's got a new book. And this is his book. It's uh, the, the Genealogical Adam and Eve. And uh, uh, this is what, what we're going to be talking about today. And I actually have, I have uh, uh, four copies of this book because Joshua sent me one. And the, the uh, publisher sent me one, and then they sent me another one when I wrote a little... I bought all my copies, okay? So, um, and I'm probably going to buy the hardback copy at some point, too, so... ...blurb for them about the book, and then I also bought an electronic copy. So, Joshua, you, you, you've made some money off of me. Uh, with that, let me just, just uh, uh, let you say hi. Thanks for having me, uh, Jim. As you know, we've been friends for a while. I have, I have an incredible amount of respect but also affection for you it's so good to see you again good to see you now, now part of now part of what happens here is that and i i have to confess i have all my own biases too um you know my biases about dennis prager uh, <laughs> and then hey but you know actually listening to him I'll learn some things about dennis prager and then hearing some of my jewish friends about who dennis prager is and how they regard him oh there's some more of the biases they all sort of filter into these models that we have that we maintain of the world and again there's enormous complexity and nuance to all of these things and so i know some of you are going to think no this is that i have the very low resolution i have myth and i have history and I keep them separate. Okay, there's your model. I don't know that that actually is a fairly good model because, again, you do at some point have to account for the writing of the sources. And now anybody who's used to historical sources knows that lots of questions come up with respect to historical sources, and some are better and some are worse. So let's, um, let's have him... Let's see, why do you believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And this is, in this section, then they sort of establish their bona fides because, you know, for evangelical Christians, there's, you know, there's one of the, 
There's one of the litmus tests. But then he, he has him do a little synopsis of his book, which I, which I think was helpful. And I, I looked on YouTube for something that would, that would do this, and that's why I picked this video, actually. That he's done. But I want to mention now his book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve. And I was really excited about this. And the last time that Joshua and I did a, did a podcast together, the, the, we, we, were, we never had a chance to talk about his book. But I found it really interesting, and I learned a lot. So I want you to just give a synopsis of your book, and then I'm going to bring you right down into some details. Yeah, so let me pull this okay. up here. So I just wanted to talk about um, something that is a bit controversial, Adam and Eve and evolution. We're talking about human origins here. And I understand that there's a lot of controversy here about what actually happened and what's true. Um, but we're going to be talking basically about the origin story of Adam and Eve and this idea of uh, evolution, which by which I just mean common descent, the idea that we share common ancestry with other animals. And I don't mean uh, that God wasn't involved. What I, what I would say is a, as a Christian that, that trusts scripture as God's inspired word. So I believe that scripture tells us that God created all things. He doesn't tell us all the time in, in, in the details of how you do it. So I would understand common descent as God's providentially governed process of creating us. And I understand that some people now, now, I'm going to say right out the bat, because I know I, I, can, I, I can already write the comments that some of you are writing, okay? There's plenty on both sides of, in terms of my models, where I'm like, and you might not even be able to guess all of the models that I have going on in my head with respect to this. But again, the point is, why did I start out this, this video with all this question about models? You can't live without models. Models will develop consciously or unconsciously. And a lot of the times we spend our time bumping up into models that we have developed unconsciously that we then have to reassert and or reassess. And and this is what both of them have. There's there's a there's a video with William Lane Craig and Swami Das on Unbelievable, where William Lane Craig, at least in the early part of the video, I haven't watched the whole video yet you know, talks about how he had to reassert models and had to reassert models because, because you know, there was, science had declared that because of um, Y chromosomal Adam and mitochondrial Eve, therefore there's no such thing as Adam and Eve that you find in the Bible. Bang. And Biologos had taken that position. Bang. Closed door. Done. And I'd seen some of my colleagues and friends sort of adopt that position and move on from there. That's what you do with models. You take something that feels sort of hard and you say, okay, I'm going to build from that. And basically Swami Das just completely destroys that assertion. And I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into why that is, because it doesn't actually take too much when you begin to understand what we're talking about to to have these things destroyed. People listening are going to disagree with that. That's okay. Just enter into a thought experiment with me. What we're really going to be asking is whether or not these two ideas of human origins are really, really in conflict with one another. Even if we read Adam and Eve in a very literal way as real people in a real past that were de novo created, um, is that really in conflict? I just have to say, because I'm a troll, Eve holding the fruit up like this just kind of makes her look like a shot putter. Anyway, just got to say. So this idea of evolution. And, and that's really the focus of my book, The, the Genealogical Adam and Eve. Uh, as 
Jim already really pointed out, I, I'm not really uh, here with an agenda except for to serve the church. Most of my time, all of my salary comes from doing scientific work. Um, and these are a couple of my students that graduated recently. And so this is really something I've just done on the side, not because I have an agenda, just because I wanted to really figure out for myself and also to serve the church and really figuring out where the conflicts really lie. So let me define this a little more clearly. What I mean by Adam and Eve is, um, is uh, if they were created without parents, uh, less than 10,000 years ago, and ancestors of everyone. That's how most people in the church have understood Adam and Eve over the last 2,000 years. There are other ways to understand Adam and Eve too, but that, that's what I mean by Adam and Eve. And by evolution, I just mean common ancestors of the great apes, and then we rise as a population, not as a single couple. It doesn't mean that God wasn't involved. In fact, I would say that science doesn't really tell us what God does, and so we can just, just we can... And, and again, it's it's part of that God wasn't involved question, and some of the models that I assume are under a sentence like that, that I begin to say, oh, wait a minute, um, the involvement of God, what you mean by God, and and I, I think in many ways, it's very God number two-ish when he's talking this way, um, but that's, so there's other theological models that I would probably have a conversation with him about, yet that doesn't mean that I didn't learn a ton in this, and this didn't actually break some things for me and say, and open up some new avenues for me, which is why I make a video about it. Just fill in the details theologically to know that he did, he, that's how he created us, that's how we came about. So well, the key thing I want to point out about this account of Adam and Eve is there's a big question mark about what happens outside the garden. If you read Genesis closely, there's borders to the garden. And the way how death comes to Adam and Eve is by just removing them from the tree of the life in the garden, which means it teaches that there was death outside the garden. But there was a place where they were able to be immortal. Now, 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 again, this is where you have these models that sort of grow up in you when you're young. And you pick them up from your religious tradition, from your religious community. And, I mean, there's huge ranges of questions about this. And what he's doing here is giving a very simple, simplified presentation about a whole bunches of questions that have been around for a very long time. In relationship eternally with God in the garden. But what's outside, there isn't a lot said about it. There's a big question mark over it. Now, one way to read that is to say that there wasn't a question mark there and that there was nothing there. Now, one way that gets read is you forget parts of scripture and you just say that the garden expanded across the entire earth. It was all death free everywhere. Genesis doesn't say that. And in fact, most Christians never believed that. That's a fairly recent sort of reading. But and, and it's really helpful that he sort of names this because that's a reading that's fairly common today. And he makes the point, which is sort of the point I made to my mother-in-law a while ago, that now... If you read this text carefully, you have constructed, I didn't say it this way because I hadn't thought all this stuff through and my models were still young and low resolution, that you're actually working from a model. And so when my mother-in-law sort of penciled in corrections into her inerrant, inspired, you know, infallible King James Bible, as King James Bible, um, the fact that you're penciling in corrections means that you actually do have a model that you're using to judge the book, the words on this page, not the other way around. In other words, this is part of the reason why a lot of these Protestant Catholic debates that I watch are like, 
yeah, I'm still very much a Protestant, but um, this is very complex that, um, you know, we're, Tim Keller likes to say things like we're saved by faith, but not by faith, which is alone. And sola scriptura, scriptura is, we never read, I mean, my, my new, my old, one of my Old Testament profs made this point to us in seminary. He says, we never read the Bible by itself. In fact, the fact that you're reading a translation means that all of the all of your the low resolution models that you have of the words that you're reading, because of course these models are all scaled up. Every single word is in a sense a, a low resolution model. This is part of the problem with cosmic skeptic and what he does in that Jordan Peterson video. Um, all of these low resolution models, all these words are low resolution models, and that's what you have when you bring to read that Bible. And you may say, well, I learned it. I learned the Bible in Hebrew, in Hebrew school. Well, but guess what? You, you, you definitely have a higher resolution, better view, because if you're reading, if all of your Hebrew is in a sense from the Bible, yet the connections between those words and the rest of the world out there, plus the other languages that you are also living in, is not going to be identical to the much larger population of words and experiences out of which the limited subset of the text exists. Uh, that, that's very quick, but um, hopefully you can understand the point of what I just made. But the real thing that's going on is, you, though you could read scripture that way, is what if you actually read scripture itself, it's, it just has a question mark there. And we'll get into that in more detail. I know that's the one place that Jim wants to talk about more. So one, the basic idea I'm doing is taking that very old interpretation of having mystery outside the garden and suggesting that maybe there were people outside, a larger population that Adam and Eve's uh, descendants. Okay, so this is this is not unique to him. In fact, if you go back on my blog, I when thinking about these issues a number of years ago, I didn't get it from a book. I just maybe I did get it from a book and forgot. I don't know, but I just. Um, you know, thinking about this question, I, I, the question of regard, um, that, that here God regards this couple as, and regards by virtue of a relationship. I mean, you can go through it all kinds of different ways, but um, is all of these assumptions that we had, which of course sort of get worked on quickly, what, what assumptions? That, well, Adam and Eve, de nuvo, first... Then, of course, you bump into, who does Cain marry? Well, Cain marries one of his sisters. <coughs> why do they live so long? Again, we were, we're just going through. Part of why I like doing Bible study with people who are not biblical scholars and listening to them is what questions bubble up from the text. Now, a lot of these are very common questions that bubble up from the text, both from the text itself and from the community's reading of the text. But there are all these questions around the text that don't get fully answered. And that's, you know, all of our models are low resolution and they, in fact, make up the biases that we have. So, uh, Interbred with, and in just a few thousand years. So even if Adam and Eve were as recent as just 6,000 years ago, our best scientific estimates would say that by, you know, before... 81, before Jesus walked the earth, before the ascension, before his crucifixion and resurrection, that everyone on the, across the entire globe, including in Americas and Australia, would all descend from Adam and Eve. That's a surprising thing. So it turns out that these things can be both true at the same time. That now, 
what he just said there. I thought, well, I thought bio, I thought genetics made that impossible. Now, this guy works in genetics and basically says no. That 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 theory that and, and he goes through it in his book, basically that there are many, many, many common ancestors. And actually the domains of genetics and the domains of genealogy are very distinct. You might say, well, well, what do you mean? Well, I have <laughs> I have cousins with let's see if I can pull up pictures of them. I don't think they'd mind. I think they'd enjoy it. Okay, we'll just take my uncle. So here's a picture of me and my uncle. This is my father's brother. And my my uncle has three sons. And I can't find a picture right now quickly of um of of two of my cousins, but two of my cousins have beards longer than I have. Um and they're also about as white as my beard. And so it's very clear now my my uncle here, um, this was a picture of 2013. I obviously had more hair in 2013 than I do now, now some 10 years later. And this was a, a picture from my father's funeral after my father, my uncle's brother, had died. But there's a fair amount of genetic, um, there's a fair amount of genetic commonality between myself and my uncle. My uncle's parents are the same as my father's parents. So genealogically, they're both past now, so I'll show them too. So so here's a here's a bunch of family. So this is my uncle that was just in the picture. And this is my grandfather and my grandmother. And this is my great-grandfather. And this is my great-great-grandfather. This is the <laughs> this is the Jew that sent his son to America. And uh, married outside the tribe, and um, and here, um, here holding my my great great grandmother holding the head of my um, grandfather when he was a little boy, and here is my biological um, my biological great grandmother who died um, having one two three four five having their sixth child. She died in childbirth, okay? And here's my aunt, and here's my uncle, and here's my grandfather and my grandmother. Now, back to the picture with me and my uncle. E even though genetically, there's a, there's a fair amount of similarity between myself and my uncle. I mean, you can see some of it. We're both, he's, he's just about the same height. Um, he's got more weight than my father ever carried. Um... He's, you know, he has sons that have big beards, just like I have. There's, there's a lot going on there. There's a whole nother tree that, of course, um, I have in me biologically that my uncle doesn't have. And so the difference between the genealogy of someone and the genetics of someone is really a very different thing. And I think part of what has happened in terms of our low resolution models is that most people sort of put genealogy and genetics together. And what this scientist does in comparing genealogy and genetics really opened my eyes to a few things. 
that Adam and Eve are real people and are real past from whom we all descend, but also the, the, there's... Now, now, again, when he says real people and real past, I would, I would quibble with that stuff because, of course, I've been upping my resolution on different, on different sides of the model because probably when he's saying real, he's thinking physical. People outside the garden, and through, by that path, we also share common ancestors through, uh, with the great apes. So there's some questions from scripture, to scripture that should bring us back to. I'm not going to get into them in detail now, but just briefly touch on them. Um, I don't think that Genesis teaches evolution, but I think it makes space for it. First of all, there's Genesis 1 and 2. It turns out for a long time, Christians have really wondered about the relationship between these two chapters. And some people thought that it actually makes sense to understand God creating uh, humanity in chapter one, and then later on, he makes Adam and Eve. Now, again, there's back to the Tom Holland thing. The intensity of the debate about these things is going to be enormous because religion is about ultimate things. Okay. So everything here can and is debated ferociously. Let me just say that. And, you know, let, let the comments fly. Become ancestors of everyone. There's also the questions that arise in Genesis 4 about Cain's wife. So he's sent out of, out of um, Adamah into the Aretz, the land, and he's afraid of people. And God endorses his fear. And people have wondered where his wife came from. And so for a long time, for over 2,000 years, people have wondered if maybe there was people outside the garden that Cain ended up uh, getting his wife from. There's also all these questions that come up about Genesis 6. Uh, answers in Genesis uh, Ken Ham, he, he, he likes to speculate about the idea of Adam and Eve's descendants interbreeding with angels in this case. But this really points out that, you know, there, there's, there's this possibility of us all the same from Adam and Eve, but also interbreeding with others. But and, and again, I know, I know, let me hear that again. I know there's going to be huge amounts of debate. My purpose is not to subscribe to Swami Das or his theories or to take sides one side or the other in this. Um, because even getting into what exactly is an angel um, and the Pejoian, the Pejoian strains takes a lot of different turns on many of this stuff. But anyway, but, but I want to point out the fact of and, and the process by which models are created, models are destroyed, new models arise. And this is a continuous process. We have to wonder if even the teaching of Genesis is that the human race is not actually only derived from Adam and Eve. And then, of course, there's Romans 5, 12 through 14, which we can discuss more, which, if you read it closely, once again, seems to suggest that there was, uh, that while uh, we're all subject to Adam, Adam's sin, there was wrongdoing in the world before Adam's sin as well. And, of course, we see that in the Genesis text itself with Eve sinning before Adam. And this suggests, once again, that, you know, maybe there was a world that existed long before Adam and Eve, from which we also derive ancestry, but the story of scripture is bound to Adam and Eve and their descendants. You know, so I've been kind of taking this idea and exploring it with a lot of people. This is one of the workshops that had non-Christian scientists like Nathan Lentz and also theologians that were uh, really, uh, really conservative. You can see Walter Bradley, one of the founders of the intelligent design movement, several theologians there. And then also Alan Templeton there, who's a leading uh, population geneticist and, uh, and, and Jewish. And, and, you know, what I think people found pretty quickly is the science that I'm sharing here really checks out, even though it's surprising. And it still raises theological questions, which are going to be fun to get into now. Uh, the scientific stuff, which I'm just going to be very brief about, is that... Okay, some of the scientific stuff in the book is really interesting. And I read it, it was like, oh, 
Oh, I, I, none of my, I didn't know that. Just this, just this little tidbit, okay? It, it just turns out that, um, that uh, genetic ancestry is where we get our DNA. It tends to dilute pretty quickly. This is one of the figures from the book. You can see that there's all these, this green stuff here. All these little boxes represent different ancestors. There's you at the center, then your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, all and out. And then to get to your great-great-great-grandparents at some point, there's a lot of them. And you can see that some of them are green. What's going on? Those are grandparents that didn't give you any DNA. And they turn out to be pretty constant. And just after 10 generations, the majority of your, your ancestors don't give you any DNA. Let, let that sink in. After 10 generations, well, how long is 10 generations? 300 years. After 10 generations, some of your ancestors, okay, genealogical ancestors don't give you any DNA. You think about it. Well, how, how, how could that be? Oh, it's because, of course, there's a mix and there's a mix and there's a mix and there's a mix. After 10 generations, you have ancestors, genealogical ancestors, of which you have no DNA left from. Because it's all crowded out by the other floods of DNA that are coming in to make you you, just in terms of the genetics. Now, remember, we've had Michael Levin, and we've had the, um, you know, we've had the, uh, the electropharmaceutical conversation and all of this. So think about that. In 300 years, we're just going to take 30 years for a generation. In 300 years, you have genealogical ancestors of which you have no genetic ancestry. Then you also have the fact that with each different generation that goes on, there are different mitochondrial and Y, um, y Adam and mitochondrial Eve, different ones. And he goes through this in the book and he lays it out. And again, he says, you know, I've, he's had this thing reviewed by secular scientists and say, yeah, you're, you're right. This is how the science works. In other words, suddenly the little resolution of, oh, there's no such thing as Adam and Eve because of um, Y chromosomal Adam and mitochondrial Eve. That whole thing is just gone. Because again, 10 generations, you don't even have the genetics of some of your physical ancestors. And so what this means is that Adam and Eve could have been genetically like a drop of water in the ocean. They could have lived as recently as 6,000 years ago or more ancient, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 years ago. But their DNA, which you can kind of see here with the dark colors, just starts to dilute. And the point where they're not our, DNA, they're not our genetic ancestors, but they are our genealogical ancestors. And that's the cool thing. It just turns out that if we mean everyone, to mean everyone since AB went on, then uh, then genealogical ancestors arise really rapidly in our past and they stretch back into the distant past. So what... So, I mean, he runs through it pretty quickly, but genealogical ancestors are very different from genetic ancestors, as it turns out. And, and again, to sort of go to the picture of my uncle, my uncle is not a genealogical ancestor of me. He's my uncle. He's, but he, he didn't, he personally didn't give me any DNA. Now we probably share quite a bit of DNA and, and that I think you can just sort of see between us. In, in fact, at, at the funeral here, um, somebody comes up to me and says, oh, are you Stan's brother? No, I'm his son. Okay. Um, yeah, lots of lots of gray hair and lots of gray hair and um, hairless scalp there. But um, 
he's not my genealogical ancestor, but we have a lot of DNA. But he's only one generation away. Ten generations, you have some genealogical ancestors of which you have no genetic code from. Just let that sink in. Okay, back to the back to the video. Whoops. Really rapidly in our past, and they stretch back into the distant past. So what could be going on is that Genesis is telling us the story of the garden and the fall of Adam and Eve, who becomes all of us. And science is telling us about what happened, what's happening outside the garden and the rise of civilization. And, and in Genesis text... Now, again, I know. For some of you, this isn't an issue at all. Because you've got non-overlapping magisteria. All right? And for some of you, you're living with a model of non-overlapping magisteria. And so... You, you take all of this, you say, don't care, don't need it, non-overlapping magisteria, I'm just fine. Great. Um, others are going to look at this and say, what do you mean? Um, common ancestry with these non-Adamic humanoid things. Okay, you're going to throw it out for that reason. Fine, but I'm just making the point that our models are super complex and there's layers to them we don't even ever look at. And what happens when you get something like this, that a whole new model emerges, you begin to say, I never thought of any of these issues, but they're actually out there in reality, these distinctions and complexities. So, oh, it's basically the definition of learning. There's a hint of something outside the garden, but we don't really know directly. When we look at science, the garden just falls into a blind spot. We don't have any evidence either way. And the ground reality could be the same for both, that there is a garden out of which God creates humanity, and there's also common descent out of which he creates us. And we all fall into a fallen civilization, and that's the story we find ourselves in now. Like I said, there's some really important questions from Scripture that to consider here, but that's the basic idea. And it shows that these two ideas, even if you're convinced that evolution is wrong, even if your convinced is false, we can now agree and find out that it's not actually in conflict with scripture. And that's really helpful because even if you personally reject evolution, the fact of the matter is a lot of people in this world really see a lot of legitimacy to it. I was raised a young earth creationist. When I encountered the evidence for evolution directly in my studies, it became harder and harder to, uh, to look past. In fact, a lot of the arguments against it, I just found out weren't really engaging the evidence that scientists were seeing that I was seeing now firsthand in genetic data. And faced with that, even if I was wrong, I really wanted to hold scripture with an, you know, as inerrant and infallible with authority. And a lot of the people we talked to about who Jesus is are going to be wondering about that too. And it turns out that we can still. Now, again, just go ahead and make the comments because I, I've, I've, I've walked through these things, and I'm not stating my own position because, again, my position on a lot of the stuff is just super low resolution because I don't need to I, – I frankly don't need to make a decision about a lot of this stuff. It doesn't really affect me that much. And, again, I'm not a non-overlapping magisterial kind of guy on these things either. But the point is, again, stuff is really complex, and there are always questions out there that we've never thought of. And reality, which is this entire thing, all of the layers put together, is also super complex. And so I'll have the link to this, this video below if you're, you want to see it. 
Now, another big point that he makes in this video is about not only the point that he makes about genetics, that as early as 300 years ago, which is not very early, not very long at all, as early as 300 years ago, you have genealogical ancestors of which you have no genetic code. Now, there might be common code that you have, including with all people, but you have no particular, this is again, the complexity of this language in the model, you have no particular code from them. Of the particular code that sort of made them a little bit distinct, you have none of a genealogical ancestor. Now, then I find this, now, Useful Charts is a very interesting YouTube channel. It can also be a very frustrating YouTube channel. If you watch, for example, his, uh, if, if there's, it's just like watching, it's just like knowing a news story that's in the paper and watching all of the decisions that the newspaper makes in terms of interpreting and relating the story that you disagree with and so you just want to throw the paper out. I mean, I've watched some of his videos where he has to make decisions. Oh, that's a dumb decision to just throw it out. The issue is that in order to make certain sorts of representations, Jesus movies always have the same problem. In order to make certain sorts of representations, you have to make decisions about things that you can't make a correspondence truth decision on because you have simply no data. And history is full of this kind of thing. So you just have to make an educated judgment. And other people are going to make other educated judgments because, again, we're sitting on top of all of these biases, all of these low-resolution models that we simply had to create or we inherited in order to live in community with other people and make our way in the world. So here's a very interesting video on all your, are all European Europeans descendants of Charlemagne? And you might say, hey, well, now wait a minute. Charlemagne isn't that long ago. If I could, I certainly have European ancestry in me. Just look at me. I'm a descendant of Charlemagne. Charlemagne. I mean, Charlemagne's a very big deal. Are all European descendants descendants of Charlemagne? That, that can't be right. If someone would, let's say, they're going to write the book of the, the biblical book of Paul Vanderclay, and they're going to start it with a genealogy, and that genealogy is going to connect me to Charlemagne. People would be just crying BS along the way. Now, it is actually a fun thing to play around with genealogies a little bit. and You don't have to go back but two, three, four generations and dealing with the sort of, the sort of data and documentation we have in this world to realize this stuff gets really complex very quickly and you start having to make decisions about names and who people are. And again, that doesn't mean that these people weren't people. It just means that actually getting a model of my own family tree, even going back four or five or six, so I can't even go back six, let's see, one, two, three, four, maybe four or five, maybe six generations, things get really complex very quickly. So this is a very interesting video. Today I'm going to answer the question, are all Europeans descendants of Charlemagne? And when I say European, we could actually expand that to include anyone with at least one European ancestor. So that would include... Okay, now he's talking genealogy, okay? ...most people in the Western world, even people of color, because usually there's at least one European somewhere in everyone's family tree. 
But the principles we're going to talk about in this video do not just apply to Europe anyway. We could change the question to, are all Asians descendants of the Tang Dynasty? Or are all Middle Easterners descendants of the Caliphs of Baghdad? So what we're really asking is whether or not every person living today is somehow related to medieval royalty. But for this... And, and again, the low resolution model of me would have said, no, that makes no sense. Why would I, why would I be related to Charlemagne? For sake of simplicity, I'm going to use Charlemagne and Europeans as an example. According to one theory is yes. Everyone alive today with at least one drop of European blood is a descendant of the great King Charlemagne. And the reason I'm bringing this whole issue up is because some people like to brag about the fact that they are a disproved and reestablished an empire in Western Europe for the first time since the fall of Rome. His empire eventually evolved into the countries we now know today as France and Germany. So every royal house in medieval and modern Europe can somehow trace their roots back to Charlemagne. That's why he's at the top of my European royal family tree chart. If you can connect to any person on this tree, you can also connect to Charlemagne. Okay, so here's the genealogy. Now, one of the things that you realize if, let's say, like with our men's Bible study, we're just simply reading through some of the genealogies in, in Genesis, you begin to realize these are enormously selective. Because in most cases, only one, let's say son, because usually they're following male lines, only one son is named from one other person. Usually the wives aren't named, and there aren't any cousins named. And one of the things that you very quickly begin to realize when you read the Bible is that the language around inheritance is fairly loose. And sons are, you know, you think about, let's say, uh, Caesar... Um, Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus. Julius, Caesar Augustus is actually the grandson of Julius Caesar's sister, biologically. But he adopts him as his son and heir. And now in the ancient world, there's a fair amount of this kind of thing going on. And so when a useful charge gets into, let's say, the genealogy of Jesus, he basically makes the assumption that, okay, the other brothers and sisters of Jesus named in the Gospel of Matthew are cousins. And I read, saw that, I said, no. And, but he did name very early on that now actually um, different religious traditions for their own reasons have different tellings of were these the sons of Joseph? Oh, someone's calling me. Hang on. I usually like to do these things in one sitting, but as you might have heard, I don't know if the mic picked it up. Daniel over outside. Pastor Paul! These things aren't going well. This is, we're not, we're not a full month into his new living situation, and that's the living situation he was in before when things went to, devolved into homeless status, and this is heading there quickly, so he wanted me to call an ambulance to get him to the psych hospital and I said well I'll just drive you so because actually <laughs> calling an ambulance costs it's I mean it's, it's not really a good use of the the emergency personnel's time <laughs> because I can drive him to the hospital he's not dangerous and um, well he is dangerous but he's not dangerous in that state I've seen him in that state many uh, most often and 
So I drove him to the psych hospital, and first I gave him a warm bowl of soup, some warm socks, some dry socks, because we're having wet, wet weather right now. So. so anyway, I have to remember where I was at with this video. Well, let's... Oh yeah, Charlemagne. So the theory that I'm going to talk about in this video is based on a paper by a Yale mathematician named Joseph Chang. His theory went on to be tested by several other experts, including some geneticists and genealogists, and the overall conclusion was that the theory seems to hold up. If you're now, now Joseph Chang's theory is also beneath the. Um, oh, what happened here? Did I, there we go. Joseph Chang's theory is also beneath um, this book because. He basically works from Chang's theory as well. And, and this is where the science versus the Bible conversation gets interesting because the truth is science relies on data and what you have for most of history and the further back you go, um, the less of it you have is evidence or data. And part of what you can learn if you read, um, what, was that, what was that book the, uh, that Peterson um, always talked about. I don't. I don't remember the title, but the it'll probably bubble up two or three minutes from now. But basically, it talked about um, basically the how statistics arose and that science. Because basically, what statistics tries to do is work from a few data points and extrapolate to the whole. The difficulty with that, and I'm not saying that statistics is unimportant or unuseful or not reliable in many ways, but the difficulty is that when you have a sample size of one, which is each individual one of us, statistics breaks down because statistics uses a variety of data points to extrapolate to a larger data set and make an argument with probability. So this this. This study is, is really quite fascinating. If you're interested in reading all of the technical details from the original sources, I'll put a bunch of links to those in the description. So the theory doesn't really have a name, but I'm going to call it the identical ancestors theory. And in order to explain it to you, I'm going to go through three genealogical principles that when taken together result in the identical ancestors theory. So principle number one is, as you go back in time, your number of ancestors increases exponentially. So here is a very basic family tree. Here's you and here are your immediate ancestors. If you go back one generation, you have exactly two ancestors, your biological father and your biological mother. If you go back another generation, you have four ancestors, your paternal grandparents and your maternal grandparents. If we keep going up, you have eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents, 32 great-great-great-grandparents, and so on. So at first glance, it appears as though the math is fairly simple. You start with two, and then you just double the number for every generation after that. So let's say we go back 10 generations. That would be 1,024 ancestors. If we go back 20 generations, that number jumps to over a million. You can see that the numbers start off small, but get really big really fast. Now, let's talk about generation length for a second. 
There are lots of different estimates when it comes to the average number of years between each generation, but I'm going to go with 30 years, which is a nice round number and is close to what most genealogists would suggest. So 20 generations would be 600 years. But instead of counting the years up, let's count them down from the year 2000. So this is the year, this is the generation number, and this is the number of ancestors we should expect to find at that point. So far, we've gone 20 generations. Let's go some more. By the time we get to 40 generations, which is when Charlemagne was around, our number has gone up to well over 1 trillion ancestors. By now, I hope you see that there's a problem. You see, the population of the entire world in the year 800 was only around 250 million people. So how can we have 1 trillion ancestors when there were only 250 million people? Well, we can't. Which leads me to the second principle. Principle number two is, as your family tree gets larger, you're going to start finding that the same people appear on different branches of your tree. Now, the word that usually pops into people's mind at this point is inbreeding, or perhaps even incest. But these words are not actually appropriate for what I'm talking about. Inbreeding and incest involve mating between very close relatives. An example of this would be Philip II of Spain from the House of Habsburg, who married his sister's daughter, his niece, and with her had a son who became Philip III. Philip III then married a close cousin, and then their son married a close cousin, and so forth. That's inbreeding, and not only is it gross, it's unhealthy. But that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about involves relatives that are a little more distant. For example, if you discover the name of a great-great-great-grandfather on your father's side of the family, and then discover that the same name also appears as a great-great-great-grandfather on your mother's side of the family, that means that your parents are third cousins. And there's a big difference between an uncle-niece marriage and a third cousin marriage. An uncle and a niece share a whopping 25% of their DNA in common. In contrast, third cousins share less than 1%, which is very close to being statistically irrelevant. Most people will be hard-pressed to name one or two of their second cousins, let alone a third cousin. So what this all means is that when calculating our number of ancestors, we cannot simply multiply two by two by two and so forth. We have to take into account the fact that throughout most of history, most people married a second, third, or fourth cousin. This is because most families lived in the same small village for generations, and therefore everybody was related to everybody somehow. I should also mention that first cousin marriages were generally not the norm, but they certainly weren't uncommon. So what genealogists have found is that as a family tree grows, its width gets bigger and bigger, but then at some point it stops and then it actually gets smaller and smaller. So let's recap what we've learned so far. After hearing about principle number one, you may have thought, wow, those numbers really add up fast. Therefore, it's really easy to imagine that everyone must be related. But and, and this is where you have your low resolution model because you think, wow, all of those ancestors, everybody just must have ancestors all over the place. But then you don't think about number two. And you heard about principle number two, you may have thought, oh, well, if most people marry distant cousins from their own village, the chances of two people from opposite sides of a continent being related must be very low. And so when I read the book, that's kind of when I was reading the book, I was like, yeah, but you know, his argument, but then 
the Uncharted, the, um, the uh, not the Uncharted, the uh, helpful charts guy keeps going. But there's still one more principle to discuss. Principle number three is the six degrees of separation principle. This principle is sometimes associated with the actor Kevin Bacon. And, and I know a lot of you hear that and think, yeah, but that's just kind of like this urban legend. There's a game you can play in which someone names an actor and the other person has to get back to Kevin Bacon in six steps or less. So, for example, let's take the actor Charlie Chapman. Charlie Chapman was in a movie called The Great... Now, for those of you who are listening, he corrects it. It's Chaplin, not Chapman, but he continues to say Chapman through the illustration. Great Dictator with Don Brody. Don Brody was in a movie called Murphy's Law with David Heyman. And David Heyman was in a movie called Where the Truth Lies with... Kevin Bacon. So you can get from Charlie Chapman to Kevin Bacon in only three steps. According to the six degrees of separation principle, you should be able to make a connection between any two people living on earth in six steps or less. Several studies using social media sites like Facebook or LinkedIn have provided evidence that in most cases, this principle is in fact true. Now, the reason why this principle works is not because everyone has lots of connections to all sorts of different people. No, most people have only a limited number of connections. However, everyone can usually get to a super well-connected person in one or two steps. And once you connect to a super well-connected person, you can then make giant leaps from one small network here to another small network over there. So when it comes to genealogy, even if most people stayed within their own small village and married within their own small village, there were always a few people that didn't. There were people who moved to the next town and still others who journeyed really far away. Factor in war, armies, and all the nasty stuff that goes along with it, you'll see that it doesn't take long for genetic connections to be made all across a continent. Now, he should have said genealogical connections, because again, if we go back to the geneticist, within 10 generations, you've already got um, people who, uh, ancestors, genealogical ancestors that you have, um, that, that you no longer bear, that, that have not given you any of their genetic material. We can apply this same principle to royal families. You may think that since royal families in the past only ever married within the nobility, there was no possibility that royal blood could have trickled down to the level of the common people. But kings often had many children. The older, legitimate ones tended to marry really well, but the younger legitimate ones, as well as the many illegitimate ones, often married lesser nobles and then their children married even lesser nobles, and so on and so on. It was not uncommon for a line to go all the way from prince to pauper in just a few generations. Okay, so we know that our number of ancestors goes up exponentially, even if due to cousin marriages we're not actually doubling it every generation. We also know that even though most people married someone who lived nearby and who belonged to the same social class, there have always been people who traveled far and wide, and people who produced children with someone richer or poorer than themselves. So when we take all of these things into consideration, make some models and use some fancy math, what conclusions can we reach? Once again, I'll remind you to check the links in the description if you want all the nitty-gritty details. But basically, here's the conclusion. 
for the continent of Europe, you only have to go back 1,000 years to reach what is called the identical ancestors point. The identical ancestors... Now bear in mind, a thousand years. A thousand years is in some ways a long time, but a thousand years is in other ways not a very long time. If you think about David, for example, in the Bible, a lot of guesses around a thousand BC, okay? So you've got a thousand years between David and Jesus. Now, we're going to get into this uh, lineage and descendants a little bit after we get through the, uh, the science and math portion of our video, but on this, on this point, there are a lot of descendants of David. And I know people sort of with their low-resolution skepticism would say, eh, how, how do they know they're descendants of David? Did you ever read how many wives David had? How many concubines? How about Solomon? Solomon's a descendant of David. David and Bathsheba, father of Solomon. How many wives, concubines did Solomon have? There are a lot of descendants of David running around. Point is the point in which every person of European descent has exactly the same set of ancestors. So if we were to go back to the year 1000 and remove the 20% of people who didn't have any children or whose lines died out completely after just a few generations, the remaining 80% are the common ancestors of every person of European descent living today. Let me put this in a few different ways so you can really grasp it. This is Jane. Jane lives in London in 2019. All of these people living in Europe 1,000 years ago, that 80% we just talked about, are her ancestors. She's a descendant of every single one of them. If we had perfect genealogical records, she'd be able to trace a direct line back to any one of them we choose. So she could trace her line to the King of England, the King of France, or the King of Hungary. But she could also trace her line to some simple farmer in Ireland, a lowly foot soldier in Poland, or the guy who swept floors of some church in Rome. And the same is true for Elsa from Stockholm. This is, this is where relevance realization gets fun, because again, I've mentioned before that there was a genealogist who was a friend of my father's cousin's son, who a couple of years before my father died, did a genealogy of the family. And as part of sort of his standard genealogical work, they went and looked for some famous, um, some famous, our most famous, um, our most famous relative. And my most famous relatives wound up to be, of all people, the Marx brothers. The Marx brothers on my father's, on my father's side are the most famous relatives. But now, Bear in mind, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of far less famous relatives. And in fact, the one he brought up was when within his salience field and he does his relevance realization. Vlad from Moscow and even me, Matt Baker from Vancouver, Canada. So if we're talking about you, assuming you have at least one European ancestor and Charlemagne, who lived even longer than 1000 years ago, then yes, you are probably a descendant of him, even if you don't know the link. In other words, theoretically, hypothetically, a genealogy could be made for you that ties you all the way back to Charlemagne simply by virtue of 
number of years. One way or another, you're going to find a you're going to find a link there. Now, it's often pointed out that you have in Luke in Luke chapter 3, you have another genealogy, and if you start comparing the Matthew genealogy to the Luke genealogy, well, they're they're a little bit different, and so often when you listen to people try to figure out, well, account for the difference. Well, um, one is the one is the genealogy of Mary. Um, he was son, so it was that. Um, and the other is the genealogy of Joseph. And truth is that you can probably, if you're trying to get back to a famous person like Charlemagne, you can probably have multiple genealogies that actually tie you from one point to the other after you get past a certain point. And then, of course, people then say, oh, but can't we figure out this with genetics? No, because remember, and, and, and Swamidas makes this point in the, in the video, genetics have a very limited scope because, again... Um, 10 generations back, I have genealogical ancestors of which who have not who have not given me any of their particular DNA. It's gone. In other words, he, he one of the points that he makes in the book is genetics is sort of like a flashlight. You can look up close. We can look and see that, yeah, well, Paul and his uncle are quite close because Paul and his uncle have um, Paul and his uncle have my grandparents, his parents in common, but of course, on the other side, I've got my mother and my mother's parents who, well, if you would go back far enough, maybe in the Netherlands, they would come back together again, and genealogists have noted this for a time. But now, part of the point here is that with respect to science, what's happening is that in lieu of the data, all they have is statistics. And statistically speaking, it isn't going to help you. Because statistically speaking, I'm a descendant of Charlemagne too. And how many other people and how many other ways can't you in some ways sort of make the connection between me and Charlemagne? Because there are going to be multiple common, common ancestors all along the way, which gets really interesting and gets really fascinating. So, whereas we sort of began looking at these genealogies and saying, oh, these just must be BS. I doubt that they're BS because actually a lot of ancient peoples traditionally pay a lot of attention to these genealogies. I remember somebody telling me that, you know, we North Americans, and I think because of these biases, just sort of dismiss these things. But you go to other peoples in the world, and suddenly they pay very close attention to them. And then when you go and you look at some of this universal history, mythological history stuff, you begin to discover that there's all sorts of genealogies going on, and genealogies are a very big part of this project because, of course, they're trying to get back to these ancestors. And, again, given what we learned about these far-distant descendants, you can get there. <laughs> and, basically, if you do the math on this, if you, go, if you take it back far enough, you're going to get genealogical ancestors and... Basically, Swamidas's point is that science and statistics 
do in no way discount the possibility or probability that you've got an Adam and Eve back there just because of the way statistics and genealogy works. And that's basically his argument. He's saying, you know, he, he, he throws in and he, he's clear about his assumptions. And his, again, one of his big, big assumptions is that there are, there are people, and he's got to get, then I got to get into the question of, well, what do we regard as people? There are people outside the garden and all of them are contributing genetics too. And, and he's a de nouveau, basically that Adam and Eve, God can make Adam and Eve basically just like it says in Genesis 2. And then with the mixture of those others, off you go. And the truth is, as he says, science won't tell you a darn thing against it. It really can't. Because again, you don't have the data. Now, whether you believe it or disbelieve it, well, you're going to believe it or disbelieve it based on all your little models and all your little biases and all of that stuff that you've inherited. But in terms of the science... There's, there's not really anything that science can say to deny it. The book has some fairly clear bulleted point lists in it that you can find to sort of zero in. Number one, the absence of evidence does not demonstrate one way or the other if Adam and Eve were de, no, de novo created. He cannot tell you, tell you from evidence either way. Two, there are five. There are five ways how Adam and Eve could have arisen, and they can consider, and they can, and we can consider independently on their merits. Three, Adam and Eve, however, did not do not likely pass us all DNA. Reproductive compatibility, moreover, requires genomes nearly identical to ours. For these reasons, we should understand them to be conspecific or of the same species with us. Four. Did God intend for their lineage to interbreed with people outside the garden? Many objections are resolved if God intended for their lineage to interbreed with a larger population. And again, all of this stuff is going to be debated. Five, another set of objections arises out of God's deception if Adam and Eve were de novo created. These objections do not apply if God intended for them to interbreed with a larger population. Scientific questions of the genealogical hypothesis are thus resolved. Remaining objections are not grounded in evidence, but in theology and philosophy. This presages a shift. A new exchange will soon begin about the meaning of human. And I haven't, I haven't yet read the human thing, but there's going to be a ton of questions in that. And again, he, he is by no means saying, I'm resolving all the questions. What he's saying is that, the scientific objection to Adam and Eve, it isn't there. You can't get there based on genetics. It is, it is apples and oranges when it comes to that question. Now, now some of you might say, yeah, but if, if, if God makes Adam and Eve, well, don't miracles violate the laws of nature? Well, Lewis actually deals with this quite well in his book, Miracles. It's a very odd thing, as odd as can be, that whatever Miss T eats turns into Miss T. W. de la Mer. Having cleared out of the way those objections which are based on a popular and confused notion that the progress of science has somehow made the world safe against miracle, we must now consider the subject on a somewhat deeper level. The question is whether nature can be known to be of such a kind that supernatural interferences with her are impossible. She is already known to be, in general, regular. She behaves according to fixed laws, many of which have been discovered and which interlock with one another. 
There is, in this discussion, no question of mere failure or inaccuracy to keep these laws on the part of nature, no question of chancy or spontaneous variation. The only question is whether, granting the existence of a power outside nature, there is any intrinsic absurdity in the idea of its intervening to produce within nature events which the regular going-on of the whole natural system would never have produced. Three conceptions of the laws of nature have been held. One, that they are mere brute facts, known only by observation, with no discoverable rhyme or reason about them. We know that nature behaves thus and thus. We do not know why she does, and can see no reason why she should not do the opposite. Two, that they are applications of the law of averages. The foundations of nature are in the random and lawless, but the number of units we are dealing with are so enormous that the behavior of these crowds, like the behavior of very large masses of men, can be calculated with practical accuracy. What we call impossible events are events so overwhelmingly improbable by actuarial standards that we do not need to take them into account. Three, that the fundamental laws of physics are really what we call necessary truths, like the truths of mathematics. In other words, that if we clearly understand what we are saying, we shall see that the opposite would be meaningless nonsense. Thus it is a law that when one billiard ball shoves another, the amount of momentum lost by the first ball must exactly equal the amount gained by the second. People who hold that the laws of nature are necessary truths would say that all we have done is to split up the single events into two halves, adventures of ball A and adventures of ball B, and then discover that the two sides of the account balance. When we understand this, we see that of course they must balance. The fundamental laws are in the long run merely statements that every event is itself and not some different event. It will at once be clear that the first of these three theories gives no assurance against miracles, indeed no assurance that, even apart from miracles, the laws which we have hitherto observed will be obeyed tomorrow. If we have no notion why a thing happens, then of course we know no reason why it should not be otherwise, and therefore have no certainty that it might not some day be otherwise. The second theory, which depends on the law of averages, is in the same position. The assurance it gives us is of the same general kind as our assurance that a coin tossed a thousand times will not give the same result, say, nine hundred times, and that the longer you toss it, the more nearly the numbers of heads and tails will come to being equal. But this is so only provided the coin is an honest coin. If it is a loaded coin, our expectations may be disappointed. But the people who believe in miracles are maintaining precisely that the coin is loaded. The expectations based on the law of averages will work only for undoctored nature, and the question whether miracles occur is just the question whether nature is ever doctored. The third view, that laws of nature are necessary truths, seems at first to present an insurmountable obstacle to miracle. The breaking of them would, in that case, be a self-contradiction, and not even omnipotence can do what is self-contradictory. Therefore the laws cannot be broken, and therefore we shall conclude no miracle can ever occur. We have gone too quickly. It is certain that the billiard balls will behave in a particular way, just as it is certain that if you divided a shilling unequally between two recipients, then A's share must exceed the half, and B's share fall short of it by exactly the same amount. Provided, of course, that A does not by sleight of hand steal some of B's pennies at the very moment of the transaction. In the same way, you know what will happen to the two billiard balls, provided nothing interferes. If one ball encounters a roughness in the cloth which the other does not, their motion will not illustrate the law in the way you had expected. Of course, what happens as the result of the roughness in the cloth will illustrate the law in some other way, but your original prediction will have been false. Or again, if I snatch up a cue and give one of the balls a little help, you will get a third result. And that's now, now, part of the difficulty that you have here, as I noted before, is that to go all the way back to the beginning, the world is too large and complex for our models. Okay? So... If you're doing, let's say you're learning physics in high school or college and you're learning about Newtonian mechanics, 
Well, you're assuming, and the professor will use it. Well, we're just gonna not. We're just gonna assume no friction. Well, what do you mean no friction? There's friction all over the place. Now, for the, for this case, no friction, and for this case, no little bumps in the cloth, and for this case, no little irregularities at the end of the cue stick, and for this case, yada yada yada. It's this little monarchical, impersonal vision from above that takes out all the confusing variables. But reality is not like that. It's simply chock full of more stuff than any of our models can take into account. Third result will equally illustrate the laws of physics and equally falsify your prediction. I shall have spoiled the experiment. All interferences leave the law perfectly true, but every prediction of what will happen in a given instance is made under the proviso other things being equal, or if there are no interferences. Whether other things are equal in a given case and whether interferences may occur is another matter. The arithmetician, as an arithmetician, does not know how likely A is to steal some of B's pennies when the shilling is being divided. You had better ask a criminologist. The physicist, as a physicist, does not know how likely I am to catch up a cue and spoil his experiment with the billiard balls. You had better ask someone who knows me. In the same way, the physicist, as such, does not know how likely it is that some supernatural power is going to interfere with them. You had better ask a metaphysician. But the physicist does know, just because he is a physicist, that if the billiard balls are tampered with by any agency, natural or supernatural, which is not taken into account, then their behavior must differ from what he expected. Not because the law is false, but because it is true. The more certain we are of the law, the more clearly we know that if new factors have been introduced, the result will vary accordingly. What we do not know, as physicists, is whether supernatural power might be one of the new factors. If the laws of nature are necessary truths, no miracle can break them but then no miracle needs to break them. It is with them as with the laws of arithmetic. If I put six pennies into a drawer on Monday and six more on Tuesday, the laws decree that, other things being equal, I shall find twelve pennies there on Wednesday. But if the drawer has been robbed, I may in fact find only two. Something will have been broken, the lock of the drawer, or the laws of England, but the laws of arithmetic will not have been broken. The new situation created by the thief will illustrate the laws of arithmetic just as well as the original situation. But if God comes to work miracles, he comes like a thief in the night. Miracle is, from the point of view of the scientist, a form of doctoring, tampering, if you like, cheating. It introduces a new factor into the situation, namely supernatural force, which the scientist had not reckoned on. He calculates what will happen, or what must have happened on a past occasion, in the belief that the situation, at that point of space and time, is or was A. But if supernatural force has been added, then the situation really is, or was, AB. And no one knows better than the scientist that AB cannot yield the same result as A. The necessary truth of the laws, far from making it impossible that miracles should occur, makes it certain that if the supernatural is operating, they must occur. For if the natural situation by itself, and the natural situation plus something else, yielded only the same result, it would be then that we should be faced with a lawless and unsystematic universe. The better you know that two and two make four, the better you know that two and three don't. This perhaps helps to make a little clearer what the laws of nature really are. We are in the habit of talking as if they cause events to happen, but they have never caused any event at all. The laws of motion do not set billiard balls moving. They analyze the motion after something else, say a man with a cue, or a lurch of the liner, or perhaps supernatural power has provided it. They produce no events. They state the pattern to which every event, if only it can be induced to happen, must conform, just as the rules of arithmetic state the pattern to which all transactions with money must conform, if only you can get hold of any money. Thus, in one sense, the laws of nature cover the whole field of space and time. In another, what they leave out is precisely the whole real universe. 
the incessant torrent of actual events which makes up true history. That must have come from somewhere else. To think the laws can produce it is like thinking that you can create real money by simply doing sums. For every law in the last resort says, if you have A, then you will get B. But first catch your A. The laws won't do it for you. It is therefore inaccurate to define a miracle as something that breaks the laws of nature. It doesn't. If I knock out my pipe, I alter the position of a great many atoms, in the long run, and to an infinitesimal degree, of all the atoms there are. Nature digests or assimilates this event with perfect ease and harmonizes it in a twinkling with all other events. It is one more bit of raw material for the laws to apply to, and they apply. I have simply thrown one event into the general cataract of events, and it finds itself at home there and conforms to all other events. If God annihilates or creates or deflects a unit of matter, he has created a new situation at that point. Immediately all nature domiciles this new situation, makes it at home in her realm, adapts all other events to it. It finds itself conforming to all the laws. If God creates a miraculous spermatozoan in the body of a virgin, it does not proceed to break any laws. The laws at once take it over. Nature is ready. Pregnancy follows according to all the normal laws, and nine months later a child is born. We see every day that physical nature is not in the least incommoded by the daily inrush of events from biological nature or from psychological nature. If events ever come from beyond nature altogether, she will be no more incommoded by them. Be sure she will rush to the point where she is invaded as the defensive forces rush to a cut in our finger and there hasten to accommodate the newcomer. The moment it enters her realm, it obeys all her laws. Miraculous wine will intoxicate. Miraculous conception will lead to pregnancy. Inspired books will suffer all the ordinary processes of textual corruption. Miraculous bread will be digested. The divine art of miracle is not an art of suspending the pattern to which events conform, but of feeding new events into that pattern. It does not violate the law's proviso, if A, then B. It says, but this time instead of A, A2. And nature, speaking through all her laws, replies, then B2, and naturalizes the immigrant as she well knows how. She is an accomplished hostess. A miracle is emphatically not an event without cause or without results. Its cause is the activity of God. Its results follow according to natural law. In the forward direction, i.e. during the time which follows its occurrence, it is interlocked with all nature just like any other event. Its peculiarity is that it is not in that way interlocked backwards, interlocked with the previous history of nature, and this is just what some people find intolerable. The reason they find it intolerable is that they start by taking nature to be the whole of reality, and they are sure that all reality must be interrelated and consistent. I agree with them. But I think they have mistaken a partial system within reality, namely nature, for the whole. That being so, the miracle and the previous history of nature may be interlocked after all, but not in the way the naturalist expected, rather in a much more roundabout fashion. The great complex event called nature, and the new particular event introduced into it by the miracle, are related by their common origin in God, and doubtless, if we knew enough, most intricately related in his purpose and design, so that a nature which had had a different history, and therefore been a different nature, would have been invaded by different miracles, or by none at all. In that way the miracles and the previous course of nature are as well interlocked as any other two realities. But you must go back as far as their common creator to find the interlocking. You will not find it within nature. The same sort of thing happens with any partial system. The behavior of fishes which are being studied in a tank makes a relatively closed system. Now suppose that the tank is shaken by a bomb in the neighborhood of the laboratory. The behavior of the fishes will now be no longer fully explicable by what was going on in the tank before the bomb fell. There will be a failure of backward interlocking. This does not mean that the bomb and the previous history of events within the tank are totally and finally unrelated. 
It does mean that to find their relation, you must go back to the much larger reality which includes both the tank and the bomb, the reality of wartime England in which bombs are falling, but some laboratories are still at work. You would never find it within the history of the tank. In the same way, the miracle is not naturally interlocked in the backward direction. To find out how it is interlocked with the previous history of nature, you must replace both nature and the miracle in a larger context. Everything is connected with everything else, but not all things are connected by the short and straight roads we expected. The rightful demand that all reality should be consistent and systematic does not therefore exclude miracles, but it has a very valuable contribution to make to our conception of them. It reminds us that miracles, if they occur, must, like all events, be revelations of that total harmony of all that exists. Nothing arbitrary, nothing simply stuck on and left unreconciled with the texture of total reality can be admitted. By definition, miracles must, of course, interrupt the usual course of nature. But if they are real, they must, in the very act of so doing, assert all the more the unity and self-consistency of total reality at some deeper level. They will not be like unmetrical lumps of prose breaking the unity of a poem. They will be like that crowning metrical audacity which, though it may be paralleled nowhere else in the poem, yet coming just where it does and effecting just what it effects is, to those who understand, the supreme revelation of the unity in the poet's conception. If what we call nature is modified by supernatural power, then we may be sure that the capability of being so modified is of the essence of nature, that the total events, if we could grasp it, would turn out to involve, by its very character, the possibility of such modifications. If nature brings forth miracles, then doubtless it is as natural for her to do so when impregnated by the masculine force beyond her as it is for a woman to bear children to a man. In calling them miracles, we do not mean that they are contradictions or outrages. We mean that, left to her own resources, she could never produce them. Now, of course, what this means is that science can basically say nothing about any of this. Um, I mean, you might get some probability questions, but there's no, there's nothing definitive with respect to anything. The um, you cannot you cannot weigh into these ge these genealogies with any sort of scientific rendering because if you approach them with statistics, you're it is it is not improbable at all that Joseph can trace his ancestry back to Abraham or Jacob or Judah. It's it's in fact highly highly likely, even given the fact that not only do you have the fact that the tribes are all related to these ancestors, but that in fact they've been paying attention to lineage all the way down. And so you can make a pretty good argument that, well, that at least there's some sort of family tradition that says that's where these lineages come from. But you certainly can't simply dismiss them by science. But you can then ask yourself, well, what are these really about? Now, also on useful charts, um, one of the one of the things he has is the evolution of Santa Claus. Now, again, there's no biological ancestry at play here, from baby Jesus to Saint Nicholas to Christ kind in Germany in the 1500s to Santa Claus in the Netherlands in the 1800s to Father Christmas in Britain in the 1600s, which at least he says, well, maybe comes more from Odin than from Jesus. And then you've got Jack Frost and Old Man Winter and all the way down to um, Santa Claus from a New Yorker piece and then down to Santa Claus from Coca-Cola in the 1930s. What you have there is a lot more of what I was doing on Sunday with respect to these traditions. 
Now, for those of you who watch the rough drafts and ever wonder if the rough drafts and the Sunday thing ever stays the same, well, you can. We've uh, I've been working with Pete. Pete was on the Freddie and Paul show this Sunday. I've been working with Pete to get the church website a little bit more up to date. So the um, the sermons can be found now on the website, at least going back through the Corinthian uh, series that I was doing before Advent. And you can find recordings. Now, the, the audio for the sermons is never as good as this. And that's part of the reason I don't post my sermons here on this channel, because at least there's a level of, of audio I want to maintain, because I also have the audio-only podcast. And so I do my best to sort of have some level of, of audio fidelity going. But Jesus, son of David. Now, of course, well, Jesus is going to be a son of David by virtue of statistics. But then suddenly there's all these other comparisons, which are much more upper register and not biology. Um, and, and, you know, genetics, again, and we made the point of genetics, there's, you're not going to be able to answer that question genetically. Because, again, after 10 generations, you have genetic lineage ancestors who... Who, are, who will not be found in an individual's genome. And again, you can go to Swami Das's book to kind of walk through all of that. But what I do on the Sunday sermon is, David, overlooked son of Bethlehem. Jesus, unreceived son of Bethlehem. David, overlooked while tending the sheep. Uh, Jesus was laid in a manger. So these kinds of symbolic connections are very much going to be seen in terms of ancestry. How is Jesus a son of David? How is Jesus a son of God? And off you go. So, yeah, I had all of these. I had all of these thoughts this morning, and I've been reading these books and 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 watching all of this stuff. So, I think in the end, what it did again for me is now when I read these genealogies, I read them in a whole different way than before I started reading this book and. Yeah, this book has changed my mind on a bunch of things, which is what a book is for. And hopefully it's added and added with accuracy and truth and faithfulness and all the various different ways that that word true tries to get us to. Higher resolution understanding of what exactly do we mean when we start talking about genetics or science or genealogy or statistics and what in fact are my assumptions when i when i take a look at these at these genealogies that i find in the bible i look at them in a whole new way so i can't wait to see the comments from you all i think they're going to be lit and i just can't wait to see where everybody sort of comes down on this thing